Hi and welcome to the final podcast in our series Culture and the Mind of Christ and uh, having messed up a couple of weeks ago I hope that we're now back on track and I want to round off uh, our little series with some reflections on what it means to live with culture. Now I don't know how you felt as we've been on our journey for the last three months. I wonder whether you have perhaps experienced a a growing sense of despair as we have seen culture changes which uh, slowly and inexorably killed off all the values of the Christian gospel and our culture has sold its collective soul to uh, all sorts of uh, what we might think of as unhelpful ideas and practices. Uh, uh, It's very easy, particularly in the current climate, to get the sense of the world falling apart. Um, You've just got to watch the news. It isn't just the Tory party that is disintegrating it it seems to be uh, international politics uh, and even our planet itself now obviously the idea of this podcast is not to depress you and to make you more miserable than you already are but it does raise some big questions doesn't it what is the world coming to And where will it all end? And in particular, and this is the one that I want to address this week, how as Christians are we supposed to live in the light of these culture changes, in the light of what's going on in the world around us? Are we right in thinking, as some would think, that the disintegration of so much of our social order is a direct result of our abandonment of God. That's a very tempting point of view to hold. Well, there are big questions, but I want to suggest a simple answer. How do we live in the light of what's going on in our world? Answer We live as the Bible tells us to. We do what it says. Now that may be uh, simplistic, but it is also, I believe, straightforward. You see, it's easy to think that we've got it really tough. There have never been times like this before. Well, in one sense, that's true, obviously. But in another sense... There's nothing new under the sun. And if you look at the world into which the New Testament epistles were written, you're going to find some pretty striking similarities. The first century church lived in the Roman Empire, but at a time when the influence of Greek culture was strengthening... And there were also um, Asian cultures beginning to appear, Middle Eastern cultures other than Judaism. 
So what was that culture like? Well, both Greeks and Romans believed in a whole variety of gods and mortals lived out their lives through what we might call a superstitious currying favour with the gods who kind of sat up there and trifled around with human lives for their own entertainment. In Roman religion particularly, it was doing the right rituals properly that kept you on side and kept the gods on your side. It wasn't about what you believed, it, the beliefs really weren't that important, but it was about religious observances, what ceremonies uh, did you go through. And because there were so many different gods, you could choose, you could make a personal choice which gods particularly you wanted to keep in with. And then you just had to do the right things, the right rituals in order to uh, keep in with them. Tolerance was the name of the game because there were lots of different gods and lots of different systems of, of how you had to um, appease them, then everything was okay. And as the Roman Empire grew and encountered other religions, it tried to absorb them into its own religions and make a kind of mashup rather than so many conquerors who have tried to eradicate what they uh, perceived as a different and false religion. That was never the Roman way, and so the, uh, the religious scope became more and more accommodating of other religions and more and more compromised in the attempts to do that. If you've been to Rome, you'll probably have visited the Pantheon, uh, built by Augustus in the years round about the change from BC to AD, and the name literally means the Temple to All Gods, and it's a place of worship where people of any particular faith could go in and do what was required of them, all in the same building, all in the same place of worship. Later on, of course, in the Roman Empire, the emperors declared themselves to be divine and demanded worship from their subjects, and it was that that got the church into so much trouble, of which a little bit more later. However, although these cultures were very religious, it didn't always stretch as far as what we might call morality. And we know from archaeological work that the greatest leisure venues in the Roman Empire were bars and brothels. There, there were loads and loads of them, and that's where men apparently spent most of their leisure time. Uh, that's when they weren't watching uh, people get killed and slaughtered in the arenas with the uh, whole gladiatorial system. Sex was really important, but it was seen as all about men 
proving their manliness and it didn't particularly matter who that was with or what gender they were and so in particular um, if you had slaves it would be absolutely rife that you would have sex with your young slaves and sometimes very young uh, both male and female in greek culture lesbianism was regarded as an irrelevance because there were no men involved and therefore it wasn't about proving masculinity it had no significance so if you wanted to uh, do that that was fine you just get on with it class divisions were endemic there was a small rich elite at the top and uh, most of the population were basically serfs or slaves uh, formed the vast majority of the population and of course at the top you've got frequent corruption, you've got sex scandals, you've got extravagant displays of wealth while others starved. Uh, if you were one of the slaves you could advance yourself if you were really lucky by becoming a slave in a town rather than scratching a living in the countryside where the vast majority of people lived. If you were lucky and you ended up with a good master, you would probably be better treated than uh, if you stayed out in the countryside. And of course the Roman Empire expanded through aggressive military campaigns into neighbouring countries in order to subdue the culture there and uh, conquer and rule over them. Any of this ringing any bells for you? The fact is, you see, Jesus has always been against popular culture and many cultures have been against him. And Christians are those who are called out of what the New Testament often refers to as this world, in other words, society organized without God and against God. Christians are called out of that to dance to a different drum and at times like the first century they have got into severe trouble for that. So given that background perhaps we can read the New Testament especially the epistles in a new light. Now I'm not going to go through every New Testament epistle and expound them, you'll probably be relieved to hear that, but what I want to do is to kind of step back and see the overview and, and pick up on the tone of so much material in those epistles. Written by church leaders to Christians who suddenly found that they were no longer at home in the culture in which they had grown up. They no longer shared so many of its values. So what do the epistles say to people in that situation? And uh, loads actually, but I, I want to condense it down if I can do that convincingly into three basic messages which I think uh, 
um, ring down the centuries from the New Testament straight into our culture today. They are these messages, be different, be better and be joyful. Number one, be different. 1 Peter chapter 4. Christians do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Something changes when we meet Christ, and we've spent enough time living as we used to, and now we are to live in some ways which, according to our culture, are surprising, and we're going to get in trouble for it. Note there the stark contrast that there is between life before you met Christ and life once you have met Christ. Uh, a, not a fashionable thought in a time when most people claim to come to faith as a gradual process rather than a dramatic crossroads. It's meant to make a difference and it's meant to make a significant difference. And after that, Ephesians 4, 17 and 18, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And again, there's a massive discontinuity. Once you've met Christ, you no longer live as the Gentiles do. Remember, this letter is written to Gentiles. You no longer live as your culture does. You've got to be different. I can remember the only time I've ever heard Tom Wright speak, and uh, what a brilliant speaker he is. But during the question time at the end, someone said to him, what do you think St. Paul would think of the church today? And without pausing for breath, Tom Wright said he would be appalled at our compromise with the world. There's so much in the epistles about not being tainted by culture, but being formed by Christ instead. Romans 12, 2 is the classic text there, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But it's not just about being different for the sake of it. Here's the second thing, be better. Christians are called to outshine others in their care, 
in their concern for others, in the rightness of their living, in their justice, in their morality, etc., etc. Now, actually, for all that our world appears to hate the church, it's interesting that they do expect us to set higher standards. That's why the media love a good sex scandal when it involves priests. Somewhere, the idea lurks that we should be living better lives than the general public. And now and then, I don't know about you, but now and then you just get a glimpse of that. This is something that happens to Chris and I from time to time. I, I wonder if it happens to you as well. Sometimes we're with other people and we think we're, you know, kind of okay Christians, but it, it has been drummed into us that we are miserable offenders and there is no health in us and all that uh, kind of stuff. But every now and then we're with other people and we see and hear the way that they behave and, and suddenly a light comes on in our heads and we think, do you know what, actually I am different. You hear people uh, talking about refugees, you know, send them all home or ship them out to Rwanda, etc. And, and we suddenly realise we might have said that 30 years ago. But now I find it appalling and offensive. The spirit has changed me. We have uh, some friends and all they talk about is money, how much they've got, how much they're making, uh, all the luxurious stuff they've bought, how they've upgraded to business class and it, it was only an extra 1,200 quid each. You know, it's lovely to be able to do that. And, and you realise what their God is and how we live with a different sort of value, different set of values. Family members, we spend uh, some time with them and, and we can just see the sheer emptiness of their lives without God. And suddenly we think to ourselves, you know, I may feel like a miserable offender a lot of the time. Actually, I am different. And actually, those 40, 50, 60 years of, of trying to walk in step with the Spirit have made a difference. It's been so gradual, we've not noticed it at the time. But just now and then, you can see it. Now, that, that's not a proud thing, like the Pharisees. You know, look how righteous I am. I thank you that I'm not like other men. Just... A sense of profound thanks that the Spirit has been at work in my life. And every now and then you're granted a rare glimpse of just how much. And, and that's really encouraging. And of course the point of this being better is to witness to others. We need admirable lifestyles. In other words, things in us that other people admire. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, we are exiles living in a foreign culture, 
to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. There's a massive evangelistic thrust to the New Testament epistles and constantly we're called to live differently but to live better lives. Actually, a lot of the tricky bits in the New Testament that we sometimes rail against stuff about women and whether they wear hats or not, actually they're all about commending the gospel to pagans. You know, I'm not going to become a Christian if my wife is suddenly going to start behaving like that. You know, in, in that culture, only prostitutes walk around with their hair uncovered. And I'm perfectly happy to spend lots of time with them, but I don't want my wife looking like one. And so Christians are known for their modesty because that will uh, appeal to and attract pagan men. It's a hypocritical kind of thing on their behalf. But nevertheless, it's still true today that, that when Christians live better lives... However much people may not like us, there is a, sometimes a grudging admiration. And you hear people say, don't you, in, in moments of weakness, I wish I had your patience. I wish I could be as calm as you are in a crisis. Or even the real gift, I wish I had faith like you've got. So we're to be better as an evangelistic strategy. And then thirdly, be joyful. Uh, I don't want to turn this into Bible bingo. You know, Romans 2.12, 1 Peter 2.11, etc. But loads in the New Testament is about not being miserable or pessimistic about our culture. Even when imprisoned and awaiting possible execution, Christians sang and praised Jesus himself lived in a life-affirming way. He had a reputation as a party guy. He was happy with what was positive about culture, and there is a lot of it. You know, we've, I, I've moaned a bit about science uh, uh, along the way, but I'll tell you what, I'm jolly glad for Pfizer and all the rest, I don't think I've got blind faith that, that science will solve all our problems. But my goodness, I'm glad it's uh, solving some of them. Uh, and what is bad in culture, remember, it will pass away. And that's what we mean when we recite that earliest Christian creed, the one which got the Christians into most trouble when they were demanded to worship the emperor. Jesus is Lord. Church services in the first century was a lot quicker because that was the creed. Jesus is Lord. And we believe that. We recite it each week, even in a much longer format, as a statement of ultimate truth. We say those words liturgically to one another, 
with one another, but we say them at, like a spit in the face, anything or everything which tries to say that it is Lord. And it is not. Jesus is. And therefore that means that this world is not our home. We no longer belong here, but we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, new heavens and new earth. And that, however crumbling our culture is, that gives us hope as we live in that light. So have a look at some of those epistles again and try and read them with these kind of spectacles on as as deeply countercultural statements of affirmation and hope about the lordship of Christ over everything that appears to be conquering him. On which note, I'm going to say goodbye for a while. We've got some holidays coming up. We've, I've got a PhD to rewrite. Um, I'm not sure yet at this stage what to tackle next in these podcasts. So I'm going to have a break. Uh, I'm sure somehow you'll manage without me. And I'll talk to you in a few weeks. And I do want to say a very big thank you for listening and supporting these. Bye.